You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Hey there, Taylor. Hi, Cindy. And hello, everyone out there listening in podcast land. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Taylor, how's your week going so far? Well, you know, it's going. I've actually been looking forward to this, though, because I'm in need of a bit of inspiration. Totally with you. Well, today you are in luck because for today's interview at the leader's table, Jason is sitting down with Arizona State Representative and proudly member Daniel Hernandez. Oh, I definitely know him. Oh, yeah? Yeah. His career got quite the start during his internship with Gabby Giffords, which led to him joining the school board at age 21, a book deal, and now he's got a seat in the state assembly representing Legislative District 2 in Arizona. That's right. And isn't his sister a state rep too? Yes. Daniel actually has two sisters working in politics now. He actually shares more about that in the interview. Should we get started? Yeah. Awesome. Just a quick warning to everyone listening in. The first few minutes of this interview does include a non-graphic recounting of an active shooter incident. So if you would like to avoid that, please skip to about the six minute mark. Pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Jason Lorenz at the leader's table with Arizona State Representative Daniel Hernandez. Daniel, welcome to the leader's table. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to start where so much of the nation got to know you. Mm -hmm. So January 8th of 2011, Mm -hmm. um, you have been uh, lauded as a hero, Mm -hmm. as uh, someone who um, did some really hard stuff and supported a leader who Mm -hmm. would suffer a lot on that day. Can you tell us a little bit about what you experienced that day? Yeah. Um, So before I tell you what happened on January 8th, I think it's important for folks to understand that I was 20 years old at the time. Um, I was working as an intern in the office of Congresswoman Gabby Giffords in Tucson, Arizona. And I was on the third day of the internship, a gentleman named Gabe Zimmerman, who was the community outreach director, came to me and he said, hey, Gabby's coming in and would like to do an event to get to talk to people about whatever's on their mind. Would you be free on Saturday morning? So I agreed to come, it was called Congress on Your Corner. And one of the things that she was really fond of and still is, is talking to people one-on-one. So this event was going to be held in front of a grocery store, uh, literally on the sidewalk in front of a Safeway in Tucson. Um, But my job was to sign people in. So as people would sign in, we would make sure that we got an understanding of what their problem was, if they had a concern or a problem with a federal agency, or were they just coming to say hello, get to meet her. Um, And the big thing that she was always very, I think, stressing to us is it was important to make sure that everybody felt included and respected. So whether they were nine years old or 90, that they all understood that her office and that she were glad that they were willing to come and spend part of their day with her, even if it was to come and yell at her or to ask questions about a federal agency. So I was there uh, working as an intern, signing folks in. 10 minutes into the event is when a gunman came in He opened fire with a semi-automatic Glock that was nine millimeters, and in less than 10 seconds, fired 30 rounds and shot 13 people who survived um, and who were injured in very horrific ways, including Gabby, who um, was shot in the head and killed six others, including a nine-year-old girl who was born on September 11th, who was there to ask a question about space because she was interested in either being an astronaut or a congresswoman, hadn't decided. 
Um, there was a federal judge who was killed. And Gabe Zimmerman, my boss at the office, um, were all folks who unfortunately didn't make it through. When the shooting started, um, I was about 40 feet away from the congresswoman. And my job was to sign people in. So I'm busy talking, getting a chance to know everybody. But when I was in high school, I was very lucky that I went to Sunnyside High School in Tucson. And I had trained as a nursing assistant and as a phlebotomist in high school. So I had some technical training, not very much, and certainly not trauma level training like what was needed on that day. But because of the training that I had as a high school student in healthcare, I was able to provide first aid for the first nine minutes while we were waiting for Gabby um, to be taken to a hospital by the EMTs. So for the first nine minutes while we were waiting for the scene to be cleared by the police and the sheriff's deputies, I was sitting with her waiting for EMTs to take over. So training as a phlebotomist and some early first aid um, doesn't really speak to where you find the courage to hold a hand Mm -hmm. while there's probably more blood than than most people will see in their lives Mm -hmm. and where you had to be afraid for your own life. Mm-hmm. What? Where did you find the courage to do what you did that day? So I think for me, the very first thing was because I had talked to every person who was in line. I knew that the most helpful thing I could do was not have a panic attack, not have an emotional reaction, but instead rely on the limited medical training that I had to provide first aid until others could come in with more training. I think it really stems from when I was five years old, sitting on the edge of my bed with my sisters on my consuelo, and I was... Uh, jumping up and down, and Alma, who was two years younger, so she was like three, thought it'd be funny to kick me. So I fell backwards and I hit the back of my head on a metal filing cabinet and I started bleeding everywhere. And my mom comes in and starts screaming that I'm going to go to the hospital. And hospitals were a really scary thing at the time because I'd only ever been when someone was dying. So by the time that I got there, there was actually a nurse waiting for me in the basically the entrance of the hospital. And I go in, she takes me into her arms and she says, everything's going to be better. She and the doctor were so kind. The doctor gave me $5 because he gave me a dollar per stitch for being brave and for not crying. But the thing that they both did was they really made the hospital seem like a place that wasn't scary. The doctor took me by the hand and walked me around and says, patient, this is my assistant, Daniel. Is it okay if he listens to your heartbeat? And that was a really great way for me to understand what the medical profession was about. And it was from that moment that I decided that I wanted to help people. But for me, I think that idea and the idea that I was taught by my grandmother, which is Ponto Granito Arena, which means put in your little grain of sand, were things that were main drivers for me for a long time and wanting to help others and understanding that no matter how big, how small, we can all contribute something to make mankind better. Are you in contact with the congressman, congresswoman these days? Yeah, I just had dinner with her not too long ago. I saw her in Las Vegas. She did a forum for presidential candidates um, on gun violence. So I got to spend some time with her there. Um, and Gabby is just such an inspiration. Even now, I think people don't realize how energetic and how much she works every single day. So now it's not in the Congress. It's working on the advocacy side, but I completely adore her. Her husband is going to be a great senator for the state of Arizona when he wins in 2020. Um, So I'm very excited to see they're both very different trajectories because I never thought that Mark would be the one running for office and Gabby would be the one who was on the outside helping um, change policy. And now because of what happened, they're having to take on different leadership roles. And I think it's been a very interesting thing. Don't see her as regularly as I would like, but that's because I'm busy 
running around being a state legislator with my sister, Alma, who's also in the state house with me. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the other grains of sand that you've mm -hmm. contributed to the, the scales of equity, um, particularly for your own community. Mm -hmm. um, in the state house over the last, uh, the last year, you've realized some legislative wins. Uh, yeah. on behalf of kids and on behalf of the, the ideas of recognizing humanity. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh my God, there's been so many exciting things happening at the legislature. So I'm in the minority, which means that generally you don't get things done. So for me, I have prioritized working with my Republican colleagues, building strong relationships, really for the work that I've always believed, which is making sure that we get as many resources to the kids that need them the most. So the first thing that I think is really important is we have a 900 to 1 student to counselor ratio in the state of Arizona. The national average is 250. The recommended number is 200. So I started working behind the scenes with a lot of my colleagues on the Republican side and many on the Democratic side who thought that this was an important thing to address. And what we did is we created a $20 million for the next three years pot of money that could be applied for by school districts and by charters to receive grants for um, them to either have a social worker, school resource officer, or counselor, or all three. With the $20 million that we got for the next three years, they got $90 million in requests. So the need is still huge, but we've been able to make, I think, a really big dent to start showing to my Republican colleagues, like this is something that's not just Daniel's crazy idea or uh, Sean's crazy idea, another state legislator who worked with me on this. This is something that's important to all schools throughout the state of Arizona. Tremendous. Um, we also were able to get $68 million in district additional assistance. So there was a plan put in place by the governor called 20 by 2020, which was an idea that he would increase teacher pay by 20% by 2020. Now, I disagree with his numbers, and I disagree with who he calls a teacher and who he doesn't include, um, because there are a lot of people that have been left out of this supposed 20% increase. So when you really look at the numbers, there are some who are getting more than 20% and some who are getting less than 20%. But what we agreed on is the 20% by 2020 was still not going to be enough to address the $1 billion in back, uh, back money that we have not funded since 2008 because we're a billion dollars short from where we should be based on inflation. We're 48th in terms of per pupil funding when you look at Arizona. So for us to be $1 billion short and say, oh, we solved it, we gave everybody an increase, but only these people that qualify with these three or four different qualifications wasn't enough. And I think the one that got the most amount of attention um, that I'm the proudest of is a law that went into effect in 1991. So there was a compromise in 1991 at the height of the AIDS crisis where there was a lot of debate about how do we make sure that kids understand and are aware so that they do not get infected with HIV and AIDS. There was a group that said the way that we do this is we teach them medically accurate information, which, you know, is important. But there were a lot of Republicans and conservative Democrats who were very concerned about teaching kids anything about sex education. So they wrote in one provision that was very problematic, which said that you could not promote homosexuality as a, as a healthy alternative lifestyle. That over the last 28 years was interpreted as anytime you talk about anybody in the LGBTQ community, even when, in not, when it is not in a sex education context, 
if you mention them in a positive way, that could be a violation of state law and put your funding at jeopardy. So for the last 28 years, many school districts opted to not even talk about LGBTQ people as if they didn't exist because they didn't want to have somebody complain or say, oh, you violated the spirit of the law. Now you're going to get your funding cut or potentially threatened. So for a long time, we had kids who were going to our public schools who were not told about Sylvia Rivera, Harvey Milk, anybody in the LGBTQ community didn't understand. Um, they didn't understand that if you don't have role models, it's difficult for you as a young person to see where you could be and what you can become. When I was the 23 and the shooting happened two years before, I was approached by Simon and & Schuster and wrote a book. And I specifically wanted it to be for young adults because I remember growing up not having that many Latino authors and no LGBTQ authors that I could read their books and look up to them. So it was important for me to have that because when I was in schools, I didn't have that. So for 28 years, this law was in place. And this year I was able to build a coalition with Republicans and Democrats and everybody else in between and repeal this law which we called no promo homo, um, but was related to sex education, but had been overinterpreted. So for me, it was something that really was a big step in the right direction because for the first time, it's gonna allow schools to talk about LGBTQ people. We have a lot of work to do to make sure that it's done well because there are many communities that are not shown who they are and talked about in our history classes. So the LGBTQ community, the Latino community with ethnic studies, but it's a step in the right direction. I am okay with doing something in a small way now and coming back in a year or two or three or four and building on a victory. So I, I want to dig in on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, if you were to name a few things that made your efforts successful mm-hmm. at advancing this policy goal from the minority in a, in mm-hmm. a state legislature with members of an opposite political party who may not be incentivized mm-hmm. to work with you to yeah. get things done, what would be those few things? What are those nuggets that, that we all should know? I think, first of all, the very most basic thing is, despite polarization and despite, I think, the attitudes around politics and politicians particularly being so negative, I have always opted to see the better things in people. I assume best intentions. That is one of the things that I don't think anybody runs for office actively trying to hurt anybody. There are some that I question it at times, but my intent is to say this person came in because they wanted to help others. What their idea of helping others might be different than my idea of helping other people, but everybody is there with the same mission, which is to help their community. So that's number one. Number two, I can disagree with you on 95% of things, but if I can find 5% of things that we can work on, then I'm going to focus on the 5% of the things that we can work on. Being in the minority has meant that I have had to work and to compromise and to really find ways to collaborate with my colleagues on the other side. Because if I don't, nothing gets done. I'm here to serve kids. I'm here to serve the constituents of LD2 and the people of Arizona. The more I dig in, the more I learn, the more I ask questions, the better I'll be as a, as a policymaker. Um, I think it goes back to when I first started as a school board member, I was 21. Nobody expected me to know anything. So I always overprepared and did my homework. Um, so getting a chance to know people one-on-one, building relationships, 
assuming best intentions and finding those things that you can work on versus focusing on how much you dislike their beliefs on this, how much you dislike them as a person. Because there are plenty of people who I do not like personally, who I would never go to dinner with, go grab a beer with, go grab a drink with. But because they are my colleagues, I respect them because they were elected just like I was. And I don't agree with them on all of these things, but I will work with them if they will work with me. And I think that's the change that I've seen at the legislature where people who are pragmatic, who are working across both sides of the aisle, get taken out in elections because we are not going out there just talking about how terrible the other side is. Because it happens on the Republican side just as well. In 2010, we saw all of the moderate Republicans really get wiped out in Arizona with the Tea Party. And now in 2019, 2020, we're saying that on the left, when people say you're not progressive enough, you're not liberal enough, you're not this enough, that enough. And I'm like, my job is not to help make any one person happy. It is to try and serve the people that live in my community and in my district and in the state of Arizona. So I'm going to keep doing that, even if that means that sometimes my friends are mad at me <laughs> and sometimes uh, my enemies are mad at me. Because if I'm getting people who are upset with me, I'm probably doing something right. You mentioned your sisters earlier, yeah. Alamán Consuelo. Um, you are a bit of a, a family of servants. How yeah. did that come about? And I'd love for you to talk yeah. a little bit about your sisters. Um, so Alma is a state representative in the neighboring district, in the district that we actually grew up in. Um, and my sister Gonzalo is on the school board, but is running for county recorder next year. Um, so a lot of people joke that we're taking over. And the thing that I keep telling people is we're not taking over we're just working hard and we have all on our own merits been able to show to people that we have a lot of things to contribute. So they both had a ton of baggage because of me. So there wasn't that much help from my side as much as it was a hindrance because people would look at them and they would assume that we were going to be the same kind of elected official. I'll teach them if they want to be taught, if they have questions, but I'm not going to impose myself or my views because I've been doing this long enough to have Plenty of people try and force me to do things. And I can't imagine having my brother or sister being in elected office telling me how to do things. Three of us are in elected office now. So it's been a really awesome experience to have two sisters that are also in elected office. But it also causes some problems because now we all have our different competing priorities. But it's, when you think about your many, many successes... I'm sure they teach you a lot, but I'd love it if you could reflect a bit on a failure. Mm -hmm. A failure that has taught you the most um, <laughs> and that for which you would not be as effective had it not occurred. So there are a lot of failures. And I think one of the things that I've often stressed to people is making mistakes is okay. And it's an important part of learning how to do your job better as an elected official. So I'm not perfect. I've never said I'm perfect. Um, I don't try and project the idea of perfection. Um, but when I was 21 and I got elected to a school board, I was serving in a school board where I was in the minority because I was the youngest. Um, I was somebody who thought that we needed to work more to change policies and to really do more to support students. There was a board that had been in place for almost 20 years. The board member who had served the longest was there almost 18, 19 years. We had board members who had seven or eight family members working in the district. So a lot of what they did was to be a very self-interested group 
who were more concerned with being an employment agency for their friends and their family. And for the first two years, year and a half, I was unwilling to kind of go against the grain because I knew that it would make me unpopular. And I wanted to try and work with these people. A year and a half into it, I realized there is no working with these people. There is no way that these people will change. I'm not here to change them. My job is here to represent the families and the students and the staff that work in Sunnyside. And if I don't call them out, they're gonna go unchecked for another 15 or 20 years. So when I went from happy-go-lucky, like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll support that, to, you know what, no, this is a problem and we can't keep doing this, I had a target that went on my back immediately. <laughs> I suddenly became the least popular person on the board. So they tried to recall me in my first term as a school board member because I asked too many questions. They needed 1,300 signatures to get me on the ballot. They got about 80. I looked at the numbers, got together with a group of community members, including my sisters, and we said, we know elections. We know we can change this. We don't have to keep working in the system. So we took the very, I think, unusual step of filing for a recall against two out of the four, sorry, two out of the three board members that were problematic. It's a five-person board. One was up for re-election the next year anyways, and we made the strategic decision that if we're going to recall people, let's recall the ones that have four-year terms, not the one that has a one-year term left. So at the age of 24, along with a very passionate group of community members, we mobilized and removed two out of the three board members. So I went from being in a 2-3 minority to being in a 4-1 majority, became the president of the board. But the mistake that I learned from the most was you sometimes have to make tough decisions and you have to be willing to be unpopular. Because if you don't do that, then people who have problems, who are corrupt, people who are not there because of the best interests of kids or the community, continue to have power. What's interesting is that you seem to have empowered in your Latino identity, mm -hmm. empowered in your, your, your identity as a gay man, and bring that to your leadership. Mm -hmm. Who taught you that? Uh, Where did you get that from? It's a combination of, I think, having uh, wonderful parents who are really hardworking, who have always supported us. Um, so for me, I think I was very lucky to have supportive family, but also having a very great chosen family of friends who are basically family. And that's the number one thing that I tell people when they're running for office, like, what does your support system look like? Because if it's just you against the world, it's going to be tough. Because if it's just you against the world, you are going to get beat down and beat up and you are not going to be able to get up as quickly as if you had other people who are there to, you know, lend you a hand and to help you get back up. I often ask on this podcast, uh, what would you advise your 21 year old self? What do you wish your 21 year old self knew <laughs> that would, would yeah. have made the following 10 years even more powerful? If I had a way of going back in time, I would tell myself, be who you are and make sure that you don't that you're not afraid to be who you are, whether it's as an elected official, as a Latino, as a gay person, be who you are at all times. Because if people don't like you, that's okay. And it's okay for people not to like you. But they have to respect you when you're trying to do your job as an elected official and as a person who's trying to impact the community. So we can disagree, we can dislike each other, but we have to respect each other. And I think that's the thing that we don't see very much in politics anymore. I think that's something that's highly problematic. And I don't know how we fix it, 
because there is not an incentive because what happens is the people that raise the most amount of money, the people who get elected are the ones who make the noise, not the ones who are quietly putting their heads down and trying to find ways to get things done. As you think about the many folks coming, uh, coming behind you, mm-hmm. um, who want to be elected, what's your rec- what, what is your advice? Don't listen to people when they tell you that it's not your turn or that it's not your time. I can't tell you how many times I've been told, well, so-and-so is better for this office. Or this other person's been waiting for two decades to do this. You should really just wait for them. Wait your turn. Nobody is ever going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you should do this. This is something where you have to believe that you are the best qualified. You have to believe that you are the most passionate and that you are willing to put aside a ton of things, personal life, vacations, travel, the fun stuff, because you care deeply about what you're hoping to accomplish. It is a sacrifice, but the work that I've done to help kids in Sunnyside, to help the staff in Sunnyside, the work that I've done in LD2 to help the people of LD2 in the state of Arizona is a much bigger reward than anything that I would have gotten from the other stuff. So for me, it goes back to when I was five years old and wanting to help people and realizing when I got older that there were other ways to help people through public policy and through advocacy. So finding your passion and really letting that kind of lead you, because if you are not passionate about something, it's never going to go well. Many young people who are even considering bringing their leadership to politics, uh, to civic leadership, um, are deterred by the money that they have to raise. Um, What's your advice there? Unfortunately, money is important and it is helpful, but money is not the sole defining factor for people getting elected. They want to see you. They want to see your volunteers and your friends. Like I can't tell you how many times I've had my dad call people and he says that he's my father. And we were like, oh, this is great. We love that he's calling. Best friend from college. These are the kinds of people that they want to hear from because they can talk about who you are and why you would be a good elected official. So money is important. Please raise it. (laughs) If you're running for office, don't think that you can't raise it and give up. Um, The other thing is you'll be amazed at how many people will open up their pockets to help you when they see you taking things on. There are people who have donated money to me who I met when I was 10, who said, even when you were a young boy, we knew that you were going to do something important. Here's $25. I have a teacher of mine who is my science teacher, Miss Winston, who has come and knocked on doors, who loves to remind people of about when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I would always look at the clock and it was time for lunch. I'd remind her if we were a minute over. Um, But it's those kinds of folks that are able to really testify to who you were and who you are and what you will be when you're elected. So I think making sure that you surround yourself with a great support system, raising as much as you can, but realizing that there are going to be people that come out of the woodworks to support you, even if you haven't talked to them in decades. Daniel, I know you were uh, just in, in Washington for a little bit of time and mm-hmm. on your way to Israel mm-hmm. tomorrow. Thank you for taking time with us, oh, for your yeah. generosity of time and insight. Happy to do it. Hopefully, uh, we'll be able to meet more Lean members. I always love meeting folks and always seeing people that I had no idea were Lean members are like, oh, you're a Lean member too. So it's always nice to connect with folks through Lean. Thank you so much for this. No, thank you. There we go. That was Daniel Hernandez from the Arizona House of Representatives with questions from Jason Lorenz. What an awesome interview. 
I love that he is able to be such a proud Latino and gay man in a, such a conservative state. I agree. And I especially thought that Daniel's comments about working across the aisle to get legislation done and his ability to focus on the ideals that they share in order to achieve change was really powerful. Absolutely. If anyone out there needs more information on Daniel and the work he's done, check out the show notes for this episode on info.educationalequity.org slash leaders table. All right, it's time for a quick break, but please stick around so we can hear from you about all the awesome things you as Lee members are doing in your own community. Hello, everyone. My name is Abba Fua, and I am a policy and advocacy coordinator at Lee. I lead Lee's efforts to connect members with roles in advocacy, organizing, and policy. And one of the ways we connect members with impactful roles is through Lee's job board. The job board is a curated list of employers from across the country who are looking to hire equity-minded talent like Lee members for their available positions. Hundreds and hundreds of Lee members have landed amazing roles through the job board, from entry-level roles like policy analyst or program manager to high-level senior leadership roles like executive director or superintendents. You should go straight to educationalequity.org slash job hyphen board to see the remarkably impactful roles that the Lee Job Board has listed right now. Or maybe you're already employed, but you have a position that needs to be filled. The job board is perfect for you too. Come on over to educationalequity.org slash job hyphen board and we'll connect you to the right people right away. Hey there, listeners. Thank you so much for sticking around. For this episode's Member in Action segment, we talked with Lee member Grace Hu. Grace is a former Teach for America educator who continued on to get her master's in public policy and then in 2008 started a career in Washington, D.C., working for the federal government. Grace has since started a family with her husband, and they decided to send their daughter to the public school across the street from their D.C. home. But as both a parent and former educator, she wasn't very pleased with what she saw. And when I get to that school, I see there's broken computers, there's laptops missing keys, and the teachers are complaining that, you know, the laptops are so old they stop working. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? You see, the Washington, D.C. public school system, or DCPS for short, actually had a big problem. The schools were shifting more curriculum online, but they didn't have the working technology to actually back it up. And so um, we were seeing that there was, there was a correlation between the schools that tended to have technology that wasn't working or not enough technology. Those were the schools with the highest at-risk populations in D.C. And so in 2018, Grace and a number of other parents gathered together to form Digital Equity in D.C. Education. And with spreadsheets, presentations, and pictures of broken technology, they met with a deputy mayor and city council with a plan to upgrade the school's technology they were ultimately able to get 18,000 new computers purchased, and they were all delivered in March of 2020. But then the pandemic hit, and well, we know what happened. And the computers just ended up staying locked up and out of the hands of the students who needed them the most. But when this all happened, we just realized, oh, we've been working on this issue. We know that we have the connections. 
We know the details. We know how DCPS works. So we just need to jump in there, even though, you know, we all had our own lives <laughs> that we are dealing with. So once again, Grace and the Digital Equity crew sprung into action, teaming up with the teacher union, and they were able to advocate for DCPS to release about 10,000 of the recently purchased computers. Since I'm a bureaucrat by day, I know these things take time. And, and so I'm just happy that we're able to get the devices which they handed out during the pandemic and that we are trying to work on a path forward um, so that we have a sustainable way to close the digital divide. As the global pandemic continues, so do the challenges. The group is still working tirelessly to sort out internet connectivity with hotspots, IT support for when things go wrong with the devices, and just figuring out how to teach students to use the computers remotely. So I'm a fed by day, and then, <laughs> and then I guess a mom activist by night. <laughs> I feel like I've kind of come full circle from working on educational equity as a, as a TFA teacher, and then now being a, a parent advocate in DC public schools. That was Lee member Grace Hu from Washington, DC. If you want to find out more about her or other Lee members who are making an impact, check out the episode's show notes at info.educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please give us a review. You can also write to us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, Taylor Stewart, and myself, Cindy Centeno. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and produced by Graham Forden. I'm Cindy, and thanks again for pulling up a seat at the leaders table. Stay safe, be well, until next time. Bye.